This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 16 of A Culture of Possibility, um, the podcast about cultural democracy, community arts, and all things relevant to that. I'm Arlene Goldbard, and I'm the co-creator, I guess, of this. I'm talking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, which is in the southwest of the United States. And I am going to ask my um, fellow co-creator to introduce himself, Francois. Hello, I'm François Matarasso. I'm speaking from Nottingham. I'm always glad when you say welcome to episode whatever number it is, because I have no idea what number we're on. And I'm slightly amazed that we've got to 16, but there you go. Thanks, Francois. And we would like to welcome our guest, Lucy Wright, who's going to tell you something about herself and her work. Thanks, Arlene. Hi, uh, my name's Lucy Wright. I'm an artist and a researcher based in uh, Leeds in West Yorkshire in, in, the, yeah, in, in England. Um, I have a kind of, I wear many hats like so many creative practitioners these days and I have this kind of unusual mixed background in that although these days I identify you know primarily as an artist for the last 10 years or so I was more of an academic I was a researcher a researcher for hire on various projects and before that still I was a folk musician and this idea of folk really informs so much of the work that I do Um, I have a, a kind of social practice a community arts type practice but it's very much a a a social practice which is aimed at researching I think which I'm I'm not sure it it is a particularly usual uh way of of kind of approaching social practice so I call it social practice and as research which is not very catchy but it tries to capture that idea that it's it's kind of a, a bit of both um and then I also have a studio practice as a painter before we we start learning about some of those things Lucy tell us can you tell us a bit about um how you came into the arts what how when did you know that you wanted to be an artist and how and tell us a little bit about your pathway into the the place that you found my goodness yeah um so as I say, I, I, you know, I, I have this background in folk, in English folk arts, and I grew up in a family of folk musicians. My dad was a, a Morris dancer, and uh, so folk music, traditional music, was some of the kind of most, you know, the, the, the most regularly heard music that I encountered when I was growing up, amongst other things, amongst all kinds of other kinds of music. Um, and in my sort of teens and 20s, I started going to folk clubs and folk festivals. I fell into being in a band and I, I thought for a little while that I wanted to be a performer. But I learned fairly quickly, I think, that kind of a life on the stage was not really for me. I'm a bit of a homebody, so the touring and the, the travel is a bit much. I, I loved my time. I was in a band called Pilgrim's Way and we, we, had, a great, we had a great few years together, but... Uh, and I, and, but the, I, the question around what folk was, you know, wanting to interrogate folk as a concept was something that I still wanted to stick with. And so, again, I sort of found myself gravitating towards researching and making art about it instead. I also trained uh, in ethnomusicology, um, which is sort of a sister discipline to anthropology. I always describe it 
as the kind of field that sits at the intersection between people, performance and place. I know historically it's very much associated with sonic, you know, with audio, uh, you know, modes of address. It's it's very much about music. I've always interpreted it more broadly as performance. And that led me into other aspects of performance, I guess. And during that time when I was studying ethnomusicology, um, I started to read a little bit more about a kind of movement that I was seeing happening in visual anthropology towards something called artistic research. Um, And I read a fantastic book called Visualising Anthropology, uh, which was edited by... Amanda Rivets and Anna Grimshaw and Amanda Rivets ended up being my PhD supervisor. I, I would still highly recommend anyone reads any of the work that Amanda does. It's always fantastic uh, and thought provoking. But it, it was a, a light bulb moment for me. I, I, I grew up in quite a working class family. And although I'd loved art in school, my, my family didn't really want me to pursue it as a degree, as a, as a kind of career. They were worried I wouldn't make any money, uh, which was true. Um, but um, so, so ethnomusicology was, was, was somehow more acceptable to them. I went down that route and then I started reading about this artistic research and it just struck me that maybe I didn't have to give up the art altogether. Maybe there was some way to integrate art making and researching in this kind of institutional context. And so that was very much the path that I went down. I remember sending an email to Amanda quite late one night uh, to, to inquire about possibilities for PhD research. And that was really, you know, I, I got I got my PhD uh, funding at Manchester School of Art and I spent three years developing an artistic practice as a researcher and I really hadn't made any art before that time you know, other than in school I, you know, I had a great interest in it but I'd really put that aside when, when I moved on and I was focusing on music so my kind of creative practice really came of age during that, that period of the PhD study and then my, my, my thesis, my doctorate was very much sort of reflecting on, on that process you know, in, in the world that we've been um, uh, navigating here on, on these podcasts, and I think in both Francois and my personal practice, it's all art to us, music and, and movement and, and writing and, and, and painting and all of those things. So I'm going to dub you artist from when you were back in the band, okay? And then it can just be a, a continuity going forward. We're going to give uh, listeners your the URL for your website, um, which has a whole bunch of great project descriptions and images and, and stuff, and they'll be able to see what we're talking about. But do you want to pick out like one or two things that you've done that you think will give people a strong flavor of what it means to um, have this artistic research in, in the service of renewing the idea of folk? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so as you say, I... When I, when I began my, my, my studies at uh, Manchester School of Art, it was it was focused on this idea of how I could use, how I could you know develop a practice as an artist that might enable me to learn new things about folk. And folk was sort of my, my case study area. Um, it could have been about anything else, but that was the thing I just happened to be interested in. And um, it, it was quite a challenge, as you know, as you can imagine, without having that background. I felt very much like a, you know an imposter for a long time. Um, what I it, sorry, I'm so ineloquent. What I wanted to do during that period of time uh, was to find ways to research with other people that were less extractive, that were not, you know, it was moving away. For, it, it was during that time in the crisis of representation in the humanities where we were starting to come to terms as a field with our kind of you know, responsibilities to the human subjects of our research, and kind of there was a lot of critique around the ways that, that, that research participants had been 
treated you know historically and artistic research felt like a sort of a great way to you know to, to address that and I'd never heard of social practice art at that time social practice art is a, is a name that I now use all the time and uh, but, but at that time I, I'd never heard anything like it but it just struck me that making art with other people might be a really great way of researching with them and that the kind of collaborative work that we would produce together would enable multiple authorships that it wouldn't just be my voice you know representing a community sometimes for the first time but it would actually be you know a collaborative group you know uh, experience um and so one of the projects that I started out with um which I'm still proud of and it's still kind of an ongoing project um the folk arts English folk arts has has something of a gender problem um if you look at the kind of uh the, the, the practices that, that we kind of are widely recognised as kind of English traditional arts, the vast majority of them do sort of centralise male pr- practitioners, um, either by sort of tacitly sidelining women or by actively prohibiting them. Um, I think I said earlier my dad was a Morris dancer, and when I was growing up, he was very clear on the, on the fact that uh, women should never do Morris dancing. Morris dancing was essentially a man's dance and that when women did it, you know, maybe it was a bit of a pastiche, you know, it was a borrowing, it was a bit of an abomination, you know, he, he was very anti it. Uh, he did change his views, but um, I, during some bits of archival research, happened upon a lot of images in the archives of troops of young women performing something called Morris dancing about a hundred years before it had previously been said that they should have done it. So I think the, the narrative that you hear most often is that women started doing Morris dancing really in about the 1970s. You know, prior to that, it was very rarely done by women and, and, and it was always a man's dance. The images I was finding from the 1880s and 1890s, and it was something called carnival Morris dancing. I'd never heard of it, been involved in the folk scene all my life, seen Morris dancing however many hundreds of thousands of times never heard of this thing and and I looked it up and it turned out that it still exists Uh, there is still something called carnival girls carnival morris dancing in the northwest of England Uh, it's incredibly popular it's very much a grassroots working class practice Um, it looks very different from the morris dancing that we're more familiar with these days Uh, it's danced to pop music so morris dancing is generally traditional music and it might be played by a fiddle or an accordion girls carnival morris dancing is, is very much more contemporary it's very loud uh pop music uh they do these incredible kind of synchronized routines um in kind of sports halls and community centers it's not so performative as you know they they don't tend to have an audience in the same way it's become kind of a sport so people sometimes liken it to competitive cheerleading um or to like irish dancing there's an interesting point about the cheerleading just just as an aside which is that um People, because they use pom-poms, they, use, they call them shakers, but they use pom-poms, people have often said, oh, it's an American import, it's something we've borrowed, the English have borrowed from America, but actually it's older than cheerleading. So I have this kind of pet theory that it might be the precursor to, to cheerleading. But, um, but anyway, this thing exists, it's really, really popular, and the folk scene, which sort of has the kind of control over this idea of what folk is, has always denigrated it, felt it was just not authentic, not an acceptable kind of aspect of English folk arts. Um, so I kind of made it my, my, my mission to go and kind of find out more about it. And um, it's very hard to get involved as a community at that time in particular as well, it, because Facebook wasn't quite so popular then. It was, there was very little online presence for these groups. It was very hard to find out where they practiced, what they were doing. You know, they don't advertise. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of managed to track a few groups down and have really you know, spent about a decade now doing these kinds of participatory art projects with different groups of 
carnival morris dancers um to kind of find out more about about what what it is that they do and and to you know to, to generate some of some of the first research you know documentation of this practice what do you think what do you hope to bring to them well, because they're already doing their thing and they're perfectly happy doing their thing they have no need of anybody else coming along so what what do you offer them and and what value is created by the relationship that you have with them it's a really good question um so yes so as a researcher rather than an artist at the beginning stage of that it was not necessarily something i had to think a lot about my I, I had the belief i guess at that point that research was inherently valuable that by kind of documenting and making more visible a practice which is lesser known that that i was already doing something of value i have thought a lot more about it in recent times and something that i'm always very clear to sort of say is that the value and the benefit that I see in the research, the artistic research that I've done with the Carnival Morris community is not so much for them, although I hope it's been a positive experience and that you know the work we do together is in some way beneficial and enjoyable. But actually for me, it's it's what Carnival Morris dancing represents and what it brings to the scholarship around folk, which sees itself as a kind of, you know, the arbiter, the gatekeeper of what this thing is. And I'm saying there's so much more to it. I believe there's so much more to folk than we actually give it credit for being and carnival morris dancing is a fantastic example of a living performance community that as you say needs no intervention what they do need so yeah they, they don't need intervention from a, an artist like me to help them be creative they they have that covered and far better than i could ever offer to them they do generally take you know, the, the, the groups are based in areas that historically and continue to receive very little investment in the arts it's often you know areas that are identified by the arts council as they're kind of you know leveling up our area the places that they that they view as you know lacking that kind of support and i would love to see this kind of visibility if i'm able to, to, to raise any visibility for this performance that they actually get recognized as legitimate artists who who deserve you know support and infrastructure just as much as any other performance group um it, that that's an interesting question. There are so many really interesting parallels between these worlds of folk and research and and art. And as listening to you talk, I was reminded of a project I did oh, about 10, 12 years ago that was... It started from the same place. It started when the Arts Council published a list of places of so-called low engagement. And I I don't believe that those places exist. I think there are places of low investment, which is a completely different uh, thing. And one of the places, I think it was the third on the list, the third lowest engagement in the country was an area I knew I had known and worked in over the years, which was Sandwell. So I wanted to do a project that that would show that that wasn't true. And what it ended up being was a project about West Bromwich Operatic Society, um, which have, was one of the... I had met a number of... I'd gone to see people like the, the local railway modelling club and um, a, 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 a women's jewellery 
uh, group and so on. And it ended up being the story of the West Bromwich Operatic Society was amazing because first off, it's older than the Arts Council. So, and I met somebody who was in the first production in 1937 and who was still there and her her daughter was the president and her her granddaughters were, were performing in it. And they, I watched them for, I mean, I worked with them for about a year while they produced um, their their version of Mel Brooks's The Producers. And they did it in in the Alexandra Theatre in, in Birmingham, which is like, I don't know, 900,000 seat theatre that they hired, they paid for, on the benefits of their last production, which had been Oliver, because that had made a lot of money. And they knew they were going to lose money on the producers, but they didn't care because that was what they wanted to do. And what I what I got, I mean, I got many things or learned many things from the time I spent with them, but but one of them was just this sense of... And they, they started having conversations with me about whether they should apply for money to the Arts Council. And... Uh, it very quickly became clear to to them. It was also very clear to me that the arts council had nothing to offer them. Literally, I mean, they don't need its legitimization. They don't need its money. They don't need the kind of. I keep hearing artists talking about giving people a voice. They've got a voice. They can sing from the stage of the Alexandra Palace, and they've got. Uh, hundreds of people who come and see them and and enjoy it so it it just it does raise these questions for me about who needs who and who's using who in some of these relations yeah but let me let me complicate this complex picture a little bit further here because uh what we're talking about with this carnival mars dancing work is that you wanted to have an impact on the world of research to broaden the, the legitimation of methods that seem so clearly, you know, fruitful and rich and, and, and productive to you, that you wanted to have an impact on general awareness, you know, of, of um, manifestations of folk art that had been ignored or suppressed or erased or just, you know, not paid attention to because they didn't conform to somebody's idea of what it was. In a lot of community-based cultural development work or artistic work, the third piece of, of that Venn diagram, the thir- third overlapping piece would be to invite people to reflect themselves on um, the larger meanings and connections and so forth of the work they're doing, which isn't about trying to change them in some way, but it's giving them an opportunity um, to see that there is a bigger picture, that the thing that they're working on is part of, and to and to engage with that, you know, to interrogate that, to investigate that, to see how it works for them. And I'm wondering, because what you're talking about could be done primarily in an observational frame. This is such a cool thing. I want to document it, and I want to document it in a way that honors it. Um, But could also be done in a more uh, dialogic or conversational frame, um, where you're reflecting together about the meaning of it. And I'm wondering, does that make sense to you? And if it does, how do you position yourself there? No, absolutely, 100%. And, and yeah, you know, hit the nail on the head with that, really. Um, because my 
kind of overriding question was and still is really, you know, what do we mean by this term folk? Is it relevant in the 21st century and what might we be able to do with it? It was never just my intention, I guess, to kind of do an ethnographic study of carnival Morris dancing, to use my art, whatever that was developing at the time, to kind of capture in some beautiful way, in some nicely packaged way, a description of this community, although that is part of it sometimes. It was always very much about that kind of dialogical thing that you mentioned, that idea of interrogating together, you know, what is it that we are doing when we come together and and practice these kinds of community-based performances that we the, the entertainment that we create for ourselves what are we doing and the folk scene has always sort of viewed itself as having a kind of you know, they have one way of, of approaching that question and one way of viewing that but there are so many other practices which also bear so many of those hallmarks but maybe view it in a very different way and I was so fascinated to find out more about what we could learn and what we could learn together about you know about folk about being you know being together, making things together, making our own entertainments, you know, thinking for ourselves, all of those things. Um, in terms of the kind of, and that was where social practice became so, I used to actually call myself a dialogical artist before social practice, it was dialogical art. And that was, I loved the idea of a conversation. I did a project, it's not really relevant here, but I did a project called Conversation Hats, which was one of my very, very earliest experiments with, with, with artistic research. And it was where people, the Morris men would show me their hat, I'd take a photograph of them with it, and then they would talk about how they'd made it. Because what interested me was not necessarily just that they did this dance, which was traditional and been passed on in, in a particular way, but that folk around folk are all of these kind of practices of making by people who perhaps wouldn't ordinarily call themselves artists. I love that folk is so DIY. You know, I know punk is also DIY, but folk is kind of the original uh, DIY practice. It's the stuff that we just make with whatever there is to hand and, you know... whether we call ourselves an artist or not and, and, I, and I just I'm so that is what I'm really in love with and that for me is what folk is um I wrote a manifesto called the uh, folk is a feminist issue manifesto uh, last year which was my kind of attempt to concisely put down a lot of my kind of frustrations with how folk as a term is is widely construed and I think my definition was uh folk is the stuff we make do and think for ourselves and the radical potential of these things Folk happens when people, alone or together, and regardless of anything, engage in culture they create for themselves. It's the communion we find with others on our own terms, the entertainment, spaces, structures, landmarks and high days that are meaningful to us, whatever the reason. The power to self-determine beyond any institution, corporation or hegemony. So for me, folk performances are the absolute beginning. It it, it widens out so much from there. I think folk is, is this incredibly powerful term that could be used so much more widely. And Carnival Morris Dancing was the spur for that for me. Thank you. I I mean I love your your folk uh, feminist folk manifesto and it's one of the reasons for wanting to to talk to you about this among others. Let me ask you a, a question that, that derives from that because what I love is precisely that affirmation that the work is valid in its own right. It doesn't need anyone to give it authority or legitimacy. But we live in a in a in a world where that idea isn't always easy to defend. So I wanted to ask you um to whom do you look for for legitimization of your of your work? I mean who who are you doing the work for? Who do you give the power to say this has value or it doesn't have value, this is good or it isn't 
good. And I put it in that way because I do think it's a... Artists are... Artists do... They don't always realise they're doing it, but as soon as you look for for validation from someone else, you're giving them power over your work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from on a personal level, as an artist, as a researcher, I would love to say that I, you know, I don't care about these things, that, that I, I have no need of that kind of validation, that the work itself is the validation. And of course, like any, you know, creative practitioner who's trying to you know, cobble together some kind of career, make make a living, pay the bills and all of that kind of thing. I, you know, I have to at least have one eye, if not both of them, on, on, on doing the kinds of things that will progress the work or just allow me to keep on doing the things I want to do. And I, it, interestingly, actually, as a bit of an aside, um, my day job, I, I'm a social producer for an arts charity in Wakefield in West Yorkshire uh, called Axis. And uh, in 2015 which was the beginning of my kind of my work with them uh, I was a co-author of a report called Validation Beyond the Gallery and it w- with, with my PhD supervisor Amanda Roberts and uh, its aim it, it was re- kind of recognising that an increasing number of artists were describing themselves in some way as being involved in social art or community art you know, participatory art these, these terms um, but that unlike studio practice artists it was harder to to see where the kind of roots of a career might be where those those areas of validation might come from that you know how, how you gain traction for this kind of work um you know because in in really simple terms i suppose uh you know if, if you're a painter when I, when I do a painting and i make a piece, a piece of art i have an object i can show it i can put it on a gallery wall people can come and look at that it can be you know shared in various ways um, and there are those roots those infrastructures for sharing and, and gaining traction for that kind of work social practice art it tends to be more private it you know, I'm being very, very, you know, generalising here, but but it does. T- it often takes place, you know, in in outside of the art world. Let's say, you know, in spaces that are not codified as art spaces. Um, artists working alone in a community for months, weeks, you know, years, even. Um, you know, it, it can often be very difficult to find out about what what is going on in terms of social practice until afterwards, and then you see the documentation, but not necessarily the work itself and and so we we as part of the report the validation beyond the gallery report we kind of asked artists you know to to tell us about how they interpreted this idea of validation and what kinds of validation they were interested in and this then bore a larger project called the models of validation project which i was also nominally involved in 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 sort of 2019 2020 um the kind of upshot that we you know the, the, the findings that we we made were just that there is a real sort of startling lack of infrastructure and support for these kinds of projects. Although so many institutions, you know, the Arts Council, for example, you know, speaks very highly of, of, of theoretically socially engaged or participatory work, and it's now the, the kind of cornerstone of Arts Council England's strategy. Actually, the projects themselves are often very poorly supported and poorly understood and poorly kind of disseminated if, if that's the right word I, I i sadly didn't make it to the um the biennial uh, in sorry the the turner prize show in in coventry which was one of the, the few times that i have kind of heard of these kinds of social projects being brought into gallery spaces because so often social and participatory projects are kind of a bit kind of cloistered off they're put into the kind of education wing they're not on the gallery floor they're kind of it's it's the kind of 
they're used in order to kind of demonstrate something about the diversity, the inclusivity, the kind of collaborative work that's being done, the, you know, the positive social impacts. But actually the work itself somehow is devalued and it's a strange kind of tension for a lot of social projects, I think. But, well, it, you know, I think... Francois, I know, wants to step in here, but let me say something first, which I, you know, for our listeners, um, I think most people are aware of the diversity of nomenclature that we're talking about here and the, and the challenge of, are we talking about the same thing? So Francois says community arts, I usually say community-based arts, but sometimes I say community cultural development, sociocultural community animation, art-based community development social practice and so on. Now the term social practice actually came more uh, from um, the art world having to find a name for work that borrowed a lot of the methods of community-based arts, some of the approaches of community-based arts, but didn't always uh, encode the values of the work that was truly community-based. Rick Lowe, who, um, who was the founder of Project Row Houses in Houston, I always quote him because he says, social practice is the gentrification of community arts. Now that's a big generalization too, but what he meant by it in an American context was it's mostly white artists, it's mostly you know, highly ed- formally educated people, and the authenticating audience for that work tends to be the folks who come into the museum to see the photographic documentation of the project after it's concluded. And from a community cultural development perspective or community arts perspective, the authenticating audience for the work are the people who co-created it with the um, artists who, who, who has an integral role there. And generally, that work doesn't actually appear in an art world context you know, at a higher level to be um, exhibited or, or whatever, although once in a while it does. I know I'm kind of a hard ass about this, you know, so I tend to go to this place of like... Um, I don't want the museum to be the ones who are telling me whether, you know, what I'm doing is valid or not. But the questions that you raise about how the work is supported, I mean, that the, what, what you said, Lucy, is just so true, no matter what language the National Endowment for the Arts or the Arts Council of um, England or any of these agencies use to say, this is our rubric now, you know, this is what we're going to do going here forward. If you graph who gets the money over a very long term of existence of these public and private funders, it's always the lion's share goes to red carpet, red velvet, major marble hall institutions, and everybody else divides up the rest of the stuff depending on what the flavor of the month is. So the complexity of it, it, it goes to how you name it, um, you know, who makes it real, um, whose who's understanding of it counts, who gets to shape it, and then how, how can you ever find the language to communicate all that to people who are operating on this totally different basis to disseminate the resources, you know? It's just such a hard point. So uh, I... I I wish there was a question in there because it was very rude of me to put my finger up without having a question to ask. But you get what I'm driving at. I wanted to just kind of fill out that map a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. No, absolutely. Um, I was just going to say very briefly that that one of the things that really struck me from that piece of research that we did um, with social artists, and I have to say, I you know, I, I kind of agree with it too, was that it was interesting how many people said that they were not interested in working with big institutions. They saw big institutions, they saw them as great currency for kind of progressing their work and being able to get access to greater resources and to do different, you know, 
larger scale project but actually their interest in being shown in galleries was, was very limited and we ended up you know one of the conclusions was the idea that that, that we, we we validate each other that it becomes a kind of meshwork of artists and communities and groups who, who validate each other we, we don't necessarily look to these big blue chip galleries for for that and, and, and you know for me as an academic because I have to say on a personal level although I have that eye on on it I'm very unsuccessful you know I never managed to get tenure in a university I don't get a lot of funding for the work I do the vast majority of the stuff I, I do is very much kind of homespun you know it's, it's what I can make from what limited pots of money or opportunities that I have and and although sometimes that can be frustrating it also does does afford you that kind of freedom and that you know so so yeah i i do think there's there's a great case for artists and, and like-minded individuals validating each other yeah francois it's interesting there's a there's a i've been thinking as you were speaking both of you that thinking back about my own work and i i think there are probably without realising it, made a distinction between certain kinds of validation. Or, no, one thing I would call validation or legitimization, and something else. The, for me, it's always been very simple. The only people that I look to to validate my work are the people I'm working with. Um, if they tell me that, it, that they're happy, that it's good, that they've together we've done something that that has meaning and is something that they are happy that they have been involved in, then I've I've achieved what I aim to achieve. There is a separate process which I've been engaged in all my working life, which is about persuading other people to fund it. But that that's completely separate to legitimization. I don't I don't go to a funder. I don't. I really don't care whether the funder likes it or not. I care that they understand that it has value enough in their terms that they would give some money for it. But their opinion of it is of is of no interest to me at all. And so and I was thinking when you said when you were talking about artists having very little interest in in being in a gallery. Um, I I. I'm more like like Arlene, or I don't know, I don't want to put words in Arlene's mouth. I would actually walk a long way not to be in a gallery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have to kind of confess that, that I, you know, I, the social the social elements of my my work, you know, it, it, it fluctuates. So I have I have both a social and the studio practice, and so I and, and this is a very new thing for me. I never expected to to kind mm. of embrace painting in the way that I have and it was probably like so many people a pandemic kind of influenced um decision uh, you know it, it became really difficult to do social pro- I mean I know some fantastic artists who did continue their work their social practice work during the pandemic but I, I have to say I was I was not one of them I, I, I kind of you know went, went into my own little little cave and, and and came out of it wanting to do painting so so yeah I, I feel very conflicted about all of these ideas I you know I would love in some ways for my work to be in a gallery and at the same time I kind of don't care too much if it if it never does um i i totally agree with with what you were saying about you know that the the kind of final the final say is whether the the people that you've worked with feel that this has been a beneficial you know experience and and i do i do hope that i i I, i'm also kind of holding on to the idea that in certain situations you know agonism plays 
plays a role and there are times when social projects don't have to be about having a nice time it can be about challenging people's ideas and you know giving them a little bit of discomfort to think think to think through but um yeah let, let me say i i my heart goes out to you when you say you're conflicted about it because actually that's when i think um sorry i'm i I don't want to sound condescending, but what I mean is, I my heart goes out to you because I think that's the right way to be about it, if you see what I mean. The reason I, I called my last book A Restless Art was precisely because it is restless and it's unsettling. And if you're conflicted about it, then I think that's a really good sign. It it means that you are, you are, you're on a, on boundaries, on borderlines where important and interesting things can happen. And that's a really uncomfortable place to be. So, um, and as I say, I, do, I don't want that to sound um, patronising because it's not for me to say that about someone else. But I just think it's, for me, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I worry, I worry, I suppose, if people feel that somehow they should have better answers. I don't think they need to have better answers. They need to be asking good questions of themselves. Well, speaking for myself, I'm a painter too, Lucy, and I, I got to do um, this series of eleven portraits that go with essays and stuff that I wrote during the pandemic because I couldn't go out. All my other work was cancelled. Coming out in a book in 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 a number of months, so you know I'm very happy with the way that came. But that suite of portraits, I would like it to be shown. It's con it's conceived as an installation, um, but I don't want it to be broken up. So no gallery is going to want to show it because no one is going to buy eleven paintings. I mean, I'm, I'm not Judy Chicago. It's not the dinner party, you know. Nobody's going to want to buy eleven paintings all at once. So I'm toggling with that, just you know, in the in the practicality of it. But when I think about this question of how I hold my personal aesthetic practice versus all of the work that I do that collaborates with people who are trying to express something. Um, I have to say that in my, it's like two different rooms in my house, you know, that uh, it feels okay to have a house with two rooms in it. I don't really think there's some way I'm going to resolve or integrate them. Listen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's perhaps a, a feature of having that kind of background in ethnography and kind of ethnomusicology being a researcher first but I almost never work with community groups that are not already an existing community of practice I I don't know whether that's sort of a, a it's it's a preference but it's also just the way it has always been I, I don't know how, how much I chose it but but I've always felt very much that they are doing me a favour you know I, I they're already doing something they're the experts in this thing that they do and I think it's wonderful what they do and I I'm fortunate if I'm allowed to be in some way a part of that and to, you know, to kind of ask questions and to come up with things that we might do together and, and you know, create that space that, that we might, you know, collaborate. I, I find that really fantastic. I know that I, you know, in terms of applying for funding and things, as a social artist, very many of the kind of opportunities that I see listed and advertised are for people to kind of work just generally, you know, sort of social practice for betterment in, a, you know, in an entire city or, you know, it, it can be enormous and I would personally I, I, I don't think I've ever really applied for or certainly not been successful in in, in securing that kind of uh, opportunity because I, I, I honestly don't know where I would 
begin with with that. I I, I always view myself as as kind of. I don't know. As I say, I, it, it, it was never until I became a painter, in which case I am the absolute, it's my work and it's exactly about me. Prior to that, I had never really seen myself as having a vision that I wanted to impose onto other people. It was always very much about you know, just just admiring and loving what, what was happening and wanting to be a part of it in some way. <laughs> so, Well, maybe, you know, I, we definitely want to ask you about what that support environment has been like for your particular work. But I want to ask you something else first. Because when I look at your website, and listeners, were, uh, I mentioned that we're going to give you the link. I also want to say folks in America might not know what Mars dancing is. And if you click on the link about the Carnival Mars dancing project, you'll get an inkling of, of what that is. And you can also Google it. But, but at, up at the top of your um, page of projects, um, Women Raise the Monoliths is, you guys, I'm looking at this picture that I can't stop looking at. It's just kind of amazing. It's, it appears to be a number of large rocks, although they might be paper mache. You never know. I'm going to find out about that. And they're painted in, in pastel Easter egg colors. And there's something about the clash, clash of the, of the you know, monolith image and the Easter egg colors that I can't get out of my mind. I would love to hear a little bit about that project how it was, uh, how it evolved, um, you, you know, your work on it and so forth. Just just a little bit if you want to tell. Yeah, thank you so much for, for identifying that. It's a really special project for me and I don't, I don't want to bring the tone down too much, but um, it was, my, my father passed away last year in the summer and he and I had worked together very closely on building those monoliths. It was sort of, what we, we hadn't seen a lot of each other during the pandemic and it was just this lovely opportunity to to build something together. And now that I look at it, I go, oh, it was just, um, it was the most lovely way to spend some time in, you know, at, that, at that point. Um, it's a project that it was based very, you know, on a, as so many of my projects are, it was it was uh, inspired by a throwaway bit of information that, that I, I happened upon, which was that uh, in you know, historically monoliths did not used to be only grey. They did not only used to be stones. They were sometimes painted. They were sometimes carved. And I love the idea that like like medieval churches used to be. You know, glorious technical and we now see them as pristine pure white but actually that that's not how they historically were and I just thought wouldn't it be great to build some monoliths that uh, that, that that were you know hyper saturated that would kind of bring a bit of the joy and you know rather than the kind of somberness and, and colour has become quite important I think in in the work that I do I think the folk arts generally are associated with a very kind of brash bright colour palette but at the same time there was something about reclaiming the kind of pastel colours of pink and, and, and orange and yellow that, that feels quite feminising. And I know it's it's all stereotype, but but that that felt important with, with many of the stuff, many of the projects I've done about the folk arts. There tends to be this kind of pastel um, palette just just to try and assert that, that folk doesn't have to look only the one way. Um, I got a little uh, commission in uh, beginning of 2020. Uh, by Leeds uh, Piano Trail, which is, again, a West Yorkshire-based initiative. Um, there's a Leeds piano competition every year, I think, and it's a classical piano competition. Uh, fantastic musicians from all over the world come together and compete on the piano. Uh, and then they commissioned a number of artists to produce pianos that could go into spaces around the city, and then there would be performances, and people could go and play them in their lunch break or whatever. It's just a nice way of kind of promoting this this competition more broadly around the city. 
Um, and so the, the, the monoliths were actually initially created to be kind of set dressing for my piano. I wanted to create kind of a bower so that people could enter into my little space and hear the music and kind of experience the kind of healing qualities of, of, of being around music. Unfortunately, the actual location for it was, was a very, very busy shopping centre and it didn't quite have, didn't quite end up with the kind of ambience that I was hoping for. But it was also just a fantastic excuse to build some monoliths. And I have never, I must say, I have never made anything so technically difficult <laughs> or kind of that I was less well equipped to do. Uh, it, they're, they're not papier-mâché, they are, they're a kind of core of polystyrene uh, covered in jessamonite uh, and then painted uh, Oh my goodness me, I, we, we, I ordered a large block of polystyrene. It came, it was about the size of, I don't know, a wardrobe, absolutely gigantic. I don't have a lot of space. My, my parents don't have a lot of space at home. So it was all being done in the garden and in the shed and the amount of mess, everything, everything was so incredibly, incredibly difficult. But um, I was really happy with how they, they, they're just very cheerful. They're very cheerful. And, and I felt they had a nice kind of atmosphere to them. I was happy with how they came out. Cool. Well, shall we segue into that big support question, which is so vexed for everybody, but, you know, we'd love to hear, um, I, I mentioned when we sent you notes beforehand that the picture for artists in Europe and artists in the USA often tend to be really different. Most people have a day job, and you mentioned that you did over here. Um, how has your work been supported over time? Uh, how, what have been the challenges of presenting your work? I'm, I'm mindful that a lot of what you're doing is inviting people to think freshly about something that may be embedded in their own awareness as something else, you know? How's that been? Oh my goodness, yeah. How long have we got? Um, It's, uh, I I always say that I, I, my work has always fallen between the stools of different established, you know, areas. Um, I, I, I think the the word that I've I've used in a positive way would be interdisciplinary, but actually, and and that's used, this idea of interdisciplinarity is often thought of as a very positive thing, but what I've tended to feel that it it really means, in institutions at least, is that two very highly disciplined people, you know, come together, and that is interdisciplinarity. But when that interdisciplinarity is located in one individual person, it's much harder to deal with. Um, I think you're viewed a little bit as a kind of dilettante, someone who can't make up their mind, maybe you can't be a specialist in so many things, and so you're sort of treated with a bit of mistrust. And as you say, the subject of my research is... You know, I, 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 it's almost laughable in terms of how how difficult it is to communicate in a way that that, that, that is is appealing to to funders. Um, folk in its own right, folk arts already would be an area that would be quite difficult to get funding for. It's it's not it doesn't have a great reputation. Uh, and when I kind of say yeah, but it's not that kind of folk. It's kind of it's yeah very it's very hard to communicate. Um, I've tried very hard over the years, again, to kind of come up with different ways of articulating what I do to try and make it more appealing to funders. And this is an ongoing kind of struggle. I'm still doing it. I applied for my first ever Arts Council grant last year. I did not get it. Uh, I'm applying again this year. I'm hoping, you know, perhaps I've, I've tightened up the way I describe it. I have no idea. Um, what The way that I have funded and supported the work I do has been very much kind of coherent with the kind of folk interest that I have it's been a folk way of funding things I think I I I just whenever there are opportunities I I try to shape them towards areas that I'm interested in working with I try and bring a folk sensibility to whatever I work on whether that be my as you say my day job uh, for Axis I believe that social practice and folk have a lot of major crossovers um, and so I try and bring that to the work 
um, and vice versa. And when I was an academic, I, I was never, I, I was always a kind of, I was an academic for about 10 years, but I was always a kind of um, researcher for hire working on other people's projects. And if I could ever get a little corner of the project or a little bit of pot of money to do something, I would always try and make the most of, of that. So the vast majority of my projects are, as I say, in non-standard spaces, you know, in in. in unusually funded so when it comes to writing that cv i always feel very inadequate because i don't have so many of those big names those those kind of the, the general gold standards that, that a lot of people have but i do feel that i've managed to by hook or by crook make things happen occasionally and, and i'm and i'm happy about that um yeah i like that that folk ethos very much the and as you say it's also a punk ethos um what I'm really talking about is the the way in which folk itself can be marginalised. So we we understand that there are marginalised communities, there are marginalised people, and so on. But then we, within that those hierarchies, there is a sense in that some things are marginalised altogether because they're not recognised as being marginalised, if you like. Um, and so I'm interested and I value those territories where, as I said earlier, where people are just finding their own ways of, of doing things and are, are quite questioning about how much and in what ways they want. I, I go back to a, a word used at the beginning when you were talking about research being extractive. I think sometimes the art world can be very extractive in social practice. Um, so I'm quite, uh, without romanticising it, I'm, there's something I can respect in those forms of, of culture, whether they're called folk or something else, which are resistant to, to that. And part of what you're talking about, part of the difficulties you have in making that, making the case for that, in a sense, they reassure me because the point at which the door starts to open easily is the point at which you start wondering what, whether this is uh, about to become fashionable and usable and gentrified, to use Arlene's uh, phrase from before. Yeah, I have this kind of, I have this theory um, that is wholly unpopular. I think it's only only me who, who, who agrees with this. But my theory is that with folk particularly, once a practice knows that it's folk, it ceases to be folk. There's something about that kind of self-identification mm. that that kind of troubles the, the kind of the immediacy and the and the kind of embeddedness within a community i i find it uh, interesting and for me there's there's a big class element um I, I always say that i kind of these days i study the lesser known lesser knowns because as you say folk arts already are pretty lesser known in the kind of dominant culture it's already a small small fry out there you know it's it's hardly known and yet and yet the folk scene is primarily quite a middle class you know community it's very white um and there are opportunities for people involved in the folk arts to kind of progress those practices in mainstream spaces. You, know, you do see certain kinds of 
folk arts in you know in mainstream spaces at different times and I you know that's that's great and I, you know, I still love the folk arts the, the established folk arts of course I do but um yeah f- for me there's something about supporting those practices you know where people don't have those kind of connections to to make use of and 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 you know emphasizing that those practices are no less valuable I think that that's really interesting and actually I I think I probably agree with your theory um so at least there's two of us um I've I've always thought that the I I found the idea of self-consciousness quite interesting in distinguishing between art in the European Enlightenment sense of the meaning of that word and culture. Um, a lot of what culture is, is unselfconscious. It's simply people doing the rituals at, that give meaning to, to everyday life. And in the Enlightenment, art, fine art gets invented as a very self-conscious thing. Nowadays, people talk about it being critical, but what they're really at the heart of it is that self-consciousness and that's what I mean what I hear when you say um, that folk which recognises itself as folk stops being folk because it's that self-consciousness and there's certainly part of the the folk world which again you could see as being the gentrified end of it the bit that gets on radio too and has awards and things like that Um, but then you know when I first went to work in Nottinghamshire 40 years ago I discovered jazz bands um, in the mining communities, you know, which are not what anybody else thinks a jazz band is. It's teenagers playing kazoos. Um, and, and that's a... I was, I was so... I loved just seeing that and seeing the enjoyment that people had doing that and all the culture around it. And it didn't need me to have an opinion about it because it really didn't matter what I thought of it like that. And I, I love that. Yeah, well, let me put in another perspective on this. I feel like my role here is to say, yes, but there are three visions of this. Um, and I'm going to add one. I don't know that you've, you've ever heard of a group called the Apple Shop. It's, um, you should, no. I'll, I'll send you a link. It's uh, in Whitesburg, Kentucky, which is in Eastern Kentucky coal mining country way back in the haulers, and in the 60s, they were just fortunate to um, be available during the time of the war on poverty in the U.S. government, their big social investment. Money went into these urban centers, you know, Detroit, um, uh, you know, Watts in, in Los Angeles, that kind of place, but they also, a big chunk went to Appalachia because the, the poverty level was epidemic. Um, and so they set up a kind of an educational center, and by now it's a big establishment. They have a record company where they record traditional music. They have a TV, local TV station. They have a filmmaking apparatus. There's a theater company called Roadside Theater. Their original works were all based on traditional folk tales and, and, and bringing them into the moment. And what they were doing was pushing against um, the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, the American television idea of what Appalachian culture was was so deeply offensive. Um, and, and they felt that, that most of the people in the country, that's the only view they had. They thought people were 
dirty and ignorant and incestuous and, you know, they all, all of the stereotypes that were promulgated in that kind of a comedy show. And so one of their reasons was defensive, to, to set out, to, to circulate this, these, these um, manifestations of folk culture um, in a respectful and different way produced by, for, and with, you know, the people who actually made them. And another one was to show people the big picture. This is happening too. This is real, even though you don't know anything about it. So I'll just say that in addition to the sort of commercialization of folk, you know, a little smoky coffee house with a guy in a black turtleneck playing his guitar and work that people do by themselves in in their own communities that no one else necessarily knows about, there is this kind of uh, movement, and I think there are counterparts in many other regions and countries where people are wanting to do something that's very aligned with your focused feminist manifesto to say you think you know what this is, but there's a whole lot more to it than that, you know, and I honor that impulse too. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Thanks, yeah, thanks for introducing me to that. Um, yes, I mean, I'm very aware as well that, that there's very little that's radical in what I say. Um, you know, even when I think about sort of folklore studies as a discipline, which is dedicated to you know, to exploring manifestations of folk in 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 the world. Um, there are, you know, I'm not the first person to to, to say that, that folk is more contemporary than it's given credit for. I'm not the first person to say that it needs to change, that, you know, that the tradition is not about remaining static. All of these things are, are, are quite well established, but there's still a very kind of prevailing belief and view of of what the folk arts are, which which continues to inform, you know, what people, how people engage with it. Um, it was interesting what you were saying about the, uh, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies um you know stereotype um i would say that the the kinds of groups that i work with primarily don't have an identity relating to folk which which is kind of comparable except that it's areas of kind of deprivation which have you know been designated as you know culturally non-participant you know this this idea of chavs or you know it's it's a very negative um picture of these kinds of working class communities and you know, the idea that they couldn't possibly have any culture and I think you know that has been you know that, that has been kind of arts policy for for you know two three decades now the idea that there are these places where people don't have culture and if only they would do more opera or ballet or you know that artists should parachute in and, and help them out and, and they would be better live better richer lives um you know I, I believe as I'm sure you know I'm not alone that, that there's already fantastic culture taking place in these areas and you know it's my job to you know yeah view it document it celebrate it in whatever ways that you know we as groups you know see see fit and to use your gifts which are considerable as as listeners will see when they go to your website in the service of of those aims so i want to applaud you too and and say thank you so much, Lucy, for being with us today. We really this was fun, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. I've really enjoyed it. Cool. Yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Thank <laughs> you, Lucy. All right, this will drop on the fifteenth of April, and um, we hope our listeners will enjoy it. Be sure to go to the meow dot net website m i a a w dot net website to see all the links that we'll add to um, this podcast recording. Thanks. 
Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.